Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Nahern. Coming to a coastline near you. Underwater seabed mining. Starring corruption, exploitation and pollution. It's been described as the next big land grab. The race to dig up the seabed. It's called deep sea mining and the mining industry see it as their next new hope. At the current rate of approvals, 1% of the world's oceans will be under exploration licences by 2016. And considering that oceans make up 70% of the Earth's surface, that's no trivial amount. Canadian mining company Nautilus Minerals has its eyes set on Papua New Guinea as the testing ground for the world's first attempt to mine metals from the seafloor. Nautilus plans to extract gold and copper from the bottom of the Bismarck Sea, off the coasts of the islands of East Britain and New Island Province. The project is named Solwara One and gained PNG government approval in 2012. Since then, it's floundered a little, but the company still aims to be actively mining by 2018. But this hasn't been met without resistance. On today's show, we speak with Dr Helen Rosenbaum from the Deep Sea Mining Campaign. Helen talks about the serious risks of deep sea mining and the local and international campaigns against it. I started by asking Helen to explain exactly what deep sea mining is all about. Basically, deep sea mining is the harvesting or the mining of minerals that have accumulated on the sea floor. And they can be up to depths of, well, some of the areas that are under exploration, mineral exploration leasehold are as deep as five kilometres and, and deeper, actually. The first mine scheduled in Papua New Guinea in the Bismarck Sea is, is 1.6 kilometres under the ocean surface. And there are several types of mineral deposits that are being looked at from, for mining. The, the one that our campaign is focused on the most is this first one in Papua New Guinea because it is the most likely world first mine and that's around hydrothermal vent systems which are like underwater volcanoes, um, very small underwater volcanoes or they're related to seismic activity under the sea, um, perhaps a bit more like um, geysers that spurt out um, a very hot and acidic mix, um, sulfidic mix of minerals. So. The environments around hydrothermal vents are quite unique and the ecosystems there are very unique. Um, they're very acidic, they're very hot, they are under immense pressure because they're that far down under the sea surface and well, organisms there don't rely on photosynthesis, they rely on um, chemo- chemosynthesis around, um, mainly around sulphide compounds. So very unique array of, of organisms and very endemic to each hydrothermal vent area. And so they're the organisms that are also at risk, these ecosystems that we don't even really understand properly and haven't been fully documented. Um, in the other areas, it's um, different kinds of crust, ferromanganese crust, 
and um, things that they call polymetallic nodules, and they're all associated with you know different kinds of ecosystems as well. Because they're outside of our Pacific, sort of Australia Pacific region, um, we haven't focused so much, and we're not so expert in, in those areas ourselves. How are these companies, how are they proposing to actually technically exploit these resource deposits? Well, around the hydrothermal vents, these, um, these vents have been spurting out the sulphitic mass for thousands, tens of thousands of, of years, maybe longer. And so they're a metre, you know, sort of hills um, that are metres high um, of... The, the sulphitic ash. So what the companies are thinking of doing, it's, it's really very crude technology and for me that's the really frightening thing because if the world's first mine at the Solwara 1 site in the Bismarck Sea does go ahead, it's very crude technology and could be very prone to accidents and spillages and things like that because basically it's, you know, Lego set technology is nothing sophisticated about it at all. Um, they plan to have a tool that um, is a robotic tool that goes along the bottom and digs up and scoops up these piles of sulphitic sandy ash and put them into some kind of suction device that takes them up through what they're calling a riser pipe, which is a, a pipe that goes up to the surface of the ocean, that 1.6 kilometres up and where it is deposited into a barge and the barge will take it for refining at a site yet to be defined. Um, the community around the site that was first identified as being a possible site for the, the mineral being stockpiled has really protested loudly about that. Um, they don't want that occurring. That was supposed to be in East New Britain. So I think the port side for that is yet still to, to be negotiated. But that's basically the technology. And the frightening thing about that is that it's um, a seismically active area. It's only 60 kilometres from Rabaul. The volcano um, just outside Rabaul blew about 35 years ago and it's, you know, it's not the centre of that area of East New Britain anymore. That's had to move to another township called Kokopo. And not many people live in Rabaul. It's still really hard to grow food in Rabaul because of that sulfitic ash that's fallen around um, Rabaul. The town basically got smothered. And um, it still hasn't really, hasn't really recovered. Uh, and there are regular um, seismic events. There are events out at sea. There's earthquakes some um, related to the seismic activity that have their epicentres out at sea, um, not far from where, the, um, in the Bismarck Sea, the same sea as the Solwara one site. And, um, and apart from that, um, there's serious storm events in that area and serious seas. And um, people are lost regularly at sea because um, boat transport is the, is the main way people get around between the islands over there. So um, from the point of view of just safety of the, you know, just looking at the mechanics of this technology, um, it's, it's not safe. And the environmental impact statement that the company behind Solwara One had approved by the PNG government for its licensing, um, that environmental impact statement doesn't even address those kind of issues. So, yeah, it's a very frightening prospect that this could occur in three years' time. 
what are your concerns about that environmental impact statement and why are you not satisfied with with that document? Why do you think that the uh, raw data needs to be released for public scrutiny? Well, we've um, produced two very comprehensive scientifically based reports looking at the EIS. Um, the first one, um, and they're both downloadable from our website, um, the first one was a general look at the across the whole EIS and drew on the work of a previous um, a reviewer, an independent reviewer of the EIS, um, a Professor Richard Steiner um, from Alaska, who's an ocean um, uh, expert, and also um, apart from that first general one, we've uh, conducted a very specific analysis of only the oceanographic aspects of the environmental impact statement. And uh, we contracted an independent um, oceanographer, an Australian-based oceanographer, to analyse that very complex set of tables and charts and strange kind of looking maps and things in the um, EIS document, which is a very large document and, you know, most people would be just frightened by the size of it. So in general terms, um, there are many gaps in the kinds of modelling and, and testing that Nautilus has conducted. And while they've been accumulating more and more baseline data around the species that exist at more hydrothermal vents, um, and, that, and that's good, so we'll have at least documented what, what will be lost, and that may help with, um, you know, understanding how to regenerate those vents, although, you know, there's huge question marks over that, and even the ecological experts who have been working with Nautilus on documenting um, the ecosystems there still question whether it's really actually possible to regenerate those, those vents at all. So there's that kind of science has been going on, but modelling around um, the impacts of plumes that are going to be generated at several points in the mining process, um, that's our concern. There's been no modelling of those plumes and there's been no modelling of the possible toxicology of what could be carried in those plumes. And so that's what we've got grave concerns about, um, that... Yes, there's going, so there's, I suppose there's two levels. There's the direct impact on these unique ecosystems right at the site of mining and the big question marks around whether they can ever be restored at all any time in the future. And we don't know the links between those ecosystems and the species that we're more familiar with closer to the surface that um, coastal communities rely on for their subsistence and for income generating and that tuna fisheries, you know, sort of regional fisheries like the tuna fisheries actually, you know, may rely on um, food webs that emanate from from down, down below as well. Um, just recently, last week, it was reported that in the Solomon Islands, for the first time, it was documented that they found sharks and other smaller species of fish swimming around in the cauldron of a volcano that was not at that time active, of course. But um, I think in a similar way, from what I understood from the reporting, um, similar to the um, hydrothermal vents, the ecosystem down there is... um, Well, the environment down there is very acidic and it's very hot. And it was a total surprise to the marine ecology community of scientists that they would find sharks 
and um, other species of fish down um, in, in that kind of environment. So, and we know thing, uh, animals like dolphins come, can they actually come down to depths of 1.5 kilometre. That's been documented. Um, amazingly, so we don't know the links between these. Um, you know what most some people might call, kind of call creepy crawlies and weird little critters down the bottom. We don't know what those links are to you know other marine food chains, and um, so there's there's a whole realm of impacts there that we don't possible impacts there that we just have no clue about. And then if you put that together with the plumes that are going to be stirred up through the mining process, these clouds of metals that are going to be stirred up and what our oceanographic, our very specific analysis of the oceanographic aspects of the EIS showed that even according to Nautilus's own data as presented in the EIS, it is possible that there are upwellings carrying, which are upward currents, vertical currents. There, It is possible that certain times of the year there will be upwellings that will carry um, these plumes upwards to a level in the in the water column where there are also horizontal currents that could possibly take them shorewards um, towards the nearest coastal communities which are only 30 kilometres away in New Ireland province. So that's another area that just, it's, it's just no, Mortalus has not provided the data um, to negate that possibility. And in fact, in their own EIS, they downplay it. They show the data, but at the same time, um, the actual text of the EIS diverts one's attention away from those risks and really downplays those risks. And it's the coastal communities of Papua New Guinea that will pay for that if this mine goes ahead. There's been some observations already that the local communities have made around um, the impacts of even the exploration phase of 401, so even before mine, commercial mining has started, communities there believe they've seen um, fish kills um, that they they slate back to being the result of disturbances due to the exploration phase. And also there's a very famous tradition that was made famous oh, some 30, 40 years ago by a film called The Shark Callers of Contu. Um, you can Google that and actually actually see YouTube clips of it. Um, around that area of New Island province, there's a really strong connection. Well, all those coastal communities have a strong spiritual connection with the ocean as well. And the shark callers, um, shark calling is a tradition whereby local special people who have this skill call the sharks up. They believe they're making connection with their spiritual ancestors as well. And it's a very um, reverential way of um, calling the sharks up. They do kill the sharks for food, but it's a really strong um, way of that they've connected back to the marine environment as well. And it's been reported by those communities where this occurs that they've been unable to call sharks up for the last several years, and they believe that's to do with disturbances under the ocean as a result of the exploration phase activities. If you think about that, in the Pacific Ocean itself, just the Pacific Ocean, there's 1.5 million square kilometres under exploration leasehold at this very point in time. So even if only a fraction of those are actually mined, the cumulative impacts 
um, in this continuous environment are going to be significant. Um, they're going to be regional, perhaps global. We, you know, and so it means that it's not going to be good enough to do uh, EISs just on a case-by-case -case basis. There's going to have to be regional planning around this and understanding of the regional impacts of um, deep sea mining. You're listening to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the Community Radio Network. And we're speaking with Dr Helen Rosenbaum about the dangers of deep sea mining. Can you tell us a bit about the resistance you've, you've mentioned already a little bit, but the, can you tell us about the resistance to this Sawera One project in PNG and your campaign's connection to local people resisting this seabed mining? The Solwara One has really galvanised um, action from across all sectors of society and from all parts of, um, I suppose especially parts of coastal PNG, even those you know not close to um, the Solwara One site. But if you look at a map, and we do have a map in our report, which is available from the website, or you can look at, say, the Nautilus website, um, you'll see that there's exploration leaseholds around quite a lot of PNG's coastline. And, um, and so the, there's been concern expressed by a range, a really wide range of people who aren't traditionally or, you know, don't have a history personally of being activists themselves, but they've been activated by, by this mine. The churches, which are a really strong force in Papua New Guinea, because of the failings of the government and providing services, the churches are really important in providing people with medical services and educational um, schools. So um, they've been really vocal. And in fact, the Evangelical Lutheran Church has called on the Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea, who is a... Um, a Lutheran has, you know, has called into account, and also at just at local level, there's been community organising in, uh, particularly in New Ireland province, and a new campaign is just going to be launched this week, actually, by a group of concerned citizens in, in New Ireland province. So um, it's something that has really galvanised action from across across the board in, in Papua New Guinea. And um, our link with that has been, um, I guess, through my own work as a consultant. I work as a community development consultant. I was working quite a bit in um, East New Britain with sometimes visits across to New Island province and became aware of the concern and confusion on the ground amongst the people I was talking to in, in villages and in, in community-based organisations about this mine. And it was something they were really unfamiliar with. Um, they were familiar with land-based mines and had, you know, have experienced some pretty negative impacts from, from land-based mines already, um, which is why they don't want mining companies messing around with um, under the ocean where they can't see what's going on because the companies and the governments have been not sufficiently accountable in dealing with the impacts on land-based mines where the impacts are very obvious. So um, we've maintained links with, our, with colleagues in Papua New Guinea and we hope in October to be going over ourselves to be doing some research work. Um, what we want to do is to very thoroughly document the impacts that communities 
uh, reporting and um, we've been asked to do that by the Lutheran Church based in Germany. What is the state of seabed mining internationally? What are uh, proposed projects and what are we looking at? Well, there's a little-known institution called the International Seabed Authority. It's an institution that was set up under the United Nations in 1982 under the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea. And the mandate of this institution, um, the International Seabed Authority, or ISA, is to control and to regulate the exploration and exploitation of minerals in the area. Now, the area is a term that seems quite strange to to most of us. Um, The area refers to the ocean that is outside the national jurisdictions of of countries. So those national jurisdictions are referred to as exclusive economic zones, EEZs, and they are an area that extends... 200 kilometres from the shoreline of of countries. So outside that 200 kilometre zone is, of course, most of the world's oceans exist outside that area. And that is the area that the ISA is supposed to um, regulate and control exploitation of. To date, it's done that really poorly. It's just had its first meeting. It's just finished in the last week in July. It's considered a draft framework for regulating deep sea mining. So we're all quite a way away from the regulatory framework, and yet the ISA has just issued its 27th licence. Um, so we think that brings it up to around a million um, square kilometres of ocean floor under exploration leasehold in the area. <laughs> so um, it's uh, the ISA works in a really um, not transparent manner. It's not clear at all whether there's any process of deliberation or any criteria companies have to meet before they're given those exploration licences. And we think it's a real shame those exploration licences have been given without them being subjected to environmental impact statements. Because mineral exploration is like mini-mining. It's um, a small-scale version of what is going to happen when those minerals are actually commercially mined. And um, as the Papua New Guinea and coastal communities think, you know, they're, they're seeing impacts already from from the exploration phase. This occurring from 27 exploration leaseholds could, you know, we could even start seeing impacts from that just from the exploration phase. Once plumes of metals, carrying metals, are stirred up, they can travel a long way with world currents. And, you know, who knows what we're going to see from even just the exploration phase. The ISA is trying to pay, play, is frantically trying to play catch up, um, realising that it needs to develop regulations. There's no regulations at all for either exploration or exploitation at the moment. And uh, we, we call for a moratorium. Uh, ourselves and other um, organisations around the world now are calling for a moratorium 
on the issuing of any further licences, exploration licences, and of course no issuing of exploitation licences. And we call on that, that there should not be any exploration or exploitation licences issued until we understand the science around impacts and until communities have had the opportunity to um, provide their informed consent. There's a, a concept, an internationally recognised concept, um, free prior informed consent. And we're saying that um, that should be applied to, um, that's, that comes out of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. What we call for is for that to be applied in relation to Indigenous people around deep, who are going to be affected by deep sea mining, but also to be broadened that those principles, which are really strong principles around um, informed consent should be broadened to apply to consent being given by civil society in general, not just Indigenous peoples, because this form of mining with its huge uncertainties has the potential to affect um, many, many people around the world living in coastal communities. There are two, two points that we think the ISA needs to integrate into its decision-making processes. Dr Helen Rosenbaum from the Deep Sea Mining Campaign. For more information, go to their website, www.deepseamininoutofourdepth.org. And that's all one word. Or simply search Deep Sea Mining online and you'll find their site. We also heard audio from an online video produced by Act Now PNG, Bismarck Ramu Group and the Pacific Network on Globalisation. You've been listening to Earth Matters, Australia's weekly environmental justice program for community radio. I'm Tisha Nahern. If you missed any of today's show... You can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. Earthmatters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earthmatters is produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Kulin Nations. You can contact us on 03 94198377 or com. I hope you can tune in next week for more Earth Matters. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Come and at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, worker stories and union news. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. Thank you.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.